0: She Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Denny. You're on Talk It is Friday, February 18th, 2011. Last week, we discussed chapters 8 and 9 of the revelation of Yahshua Christ. It is my persuasion that with that program, we saw with all certainty the fulfillment of prophecy in history, whereby we have every reason to believe the Bible and to know that our God is true. This is the very challenge that Yahweh our God himself gives to us addressing the idols of the people, the false gods, in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 29, where the King James Version says, Produce your cause, says Yahweh, bring forth your strong reason," saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yeah, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed, and behold it together. Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. I have raised up one from the north, he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name. And he shall come upon princes as upon mortar. And as the potter treads the clay, who has declared from the beginning that you may know, and before time that we may say, he is righteous? Yeah, there is none that shows, yeah, there is none that declares, yeah, there is none that hears your words. The first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings, for I beheld, and there was no man, even among them. And there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. If one can elucidate the things of the past and also reveal the things of the future, then one is God indeed. Revelation chapter 8 describes perfectly, well, well over 400 years in advance the invasions of Rome by the Goths and the Vandals, then the rise of Justinian, and the year of the dull sun, which we have seen was attested to by the Byzantine historian Procopius, which took place circa 537 AD. In chapter 9, we saw a description of the scourge of Mohammedism and the Arab and then the Turkic conquests of much of Christendom. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9, We see the reasons why this scourge was brought upon our people. And it runs parallel to that passage from Isaiah that I just read about false gods being vanity because they can't tell the past or the future. Revelation 9.20 says, And the rest of the men, those who had not been killed by these plagues, did not even repent from the works of their hands that they do not worship demons and idols, things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood, things which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. And they did not repent from their murders, nor their drugs, nor their fornications, nor their threats, thefts, I'm sorry. This is a description not only of ancient paganism, both of Romish and Eastern Orthodox Catholicism as well. For the Catholic religion, as it is called, is full of the idols and superstitions and vices of the ancient pagan world. The saint worship of the Catholics is the idol worship of the fallen angels, as elucidated by Paul of Tarsus in his epistles to the Colossians and the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which are also the ancient pagan religions of Mesopotamia and Canaan. The Catholics simply transferred the powers and abilities and and dominions of these pagan gods and goddesses into Christianity by calling them saints and changing their names. In addition, fornication is also race-mixing, evident in passages such as 1 Corinthians 10.8 and Jude 7. And while the Bible divides the world among the sons of Adam... Yet the Catholics seek to divide it among whomsoever they can coax or subdue into their own organization. The use of drugs mentioned in Revelation 9, version, I'm sorry, verse 20. The use of drugs is to belittle the power of God, and therefore it is sorcery. Thus we see that the stage is set for Revelation chapter 10, Where we see the opening of the little book, which is the Bible, and the revolt of many, I must not say all, but many of the children of Israel, from the Romish church beast. One of the goals of the reformers was to do away with a lot of these idols, these things, for which men are condemned, as described here at the end of Revelation chapter 9, and especially the idols. Here I will commence with Revelation chapter 10. In an e- I'm sorry. Verse 1. And I saw another mighty messenger descending from heaven, cloaked in a cloud, and a rainbow upon his head, and his face like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And holding in his hand a small book, having been opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and then he le- his left upon the land, and he cried out in a great voice, just as a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from out of heaven saying, I have sealed the things which the seven thunders, thunders have uttered, and you should not write these things. Well, I won't be getting into what the seven thunders could have said, because there's no way that we can know. In an eighth-century letter, By an English bishop named Cuthbert, we have the following, where he is speaking of Bede. Bede is the famous English cleric and historian, church historian. And we must hear it bearing in mind that these men are 8th century English Roman Catholic bishops. And I will quote from Cuthbert's letter, in those days, moreover, Beside the lessons which we received from him, meaning Bede, and the chanting of the Psalms, there were two works very worthy of mention which he endeavored to accomplish. To wit, the Gospel of St. John, which he translated into our Saxon tongue for the prophet of the church, and certain extracts from the books of Bishop Isidore. So we see... From this letter, and and this is only one evidence, there are many evidences throughout the writings of Bede as to the veracity of this, we see that translating the Bible, or portions of the Bible, was a wholly acceptable endeavor undertaken by Roman Catholic priests in the 8th century AD. In fact, in his ecclesiastical history, Bede often described men who were well-versed and who read the scriptures not only in Latin, but also in Greek. Yet, shortly after these times, the Romish Church turned in a direction which was absolutely contrary to the spirit of Scripture. And it made an effort to repress the word of God and keep it from the ears of the people. Pope Innocent III stated in 1199 AD, quote, to be reproved are those who translate into French the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the Psalter, etc. They are moved by a certain love of Scripture in order to explain them clandestinely and to preach them to one another. The mysteries of the faith are not to be explained rashly to anyone. Usually, in fact, they cannot be understood by everyone, but only by those who are qualified to understand them with informed intelligence. I guess whoever goes along with the decrees of the Roman Catholic Church, right? The death of the divine scriptures is such that not only the illiterate and on the uninitiated have difficulty understanding them, but also the educated and the gifted. How many times did Christ say that he spoke in parables so that certain people certainly wouldn't understand them? That comes from um Denzinger Schoenmetzer and Caridian Symbolorum, pages seven hundred seventy-seven seventy-one. The Council of Toulouse, 30 years later, which met in November of 1229 A.D., about the time of the crusade against the Albigensians, set up a special ecclesiastical tribunal or court known as the Inquisition to search out and try heretics. Twenty of the 45 articles decreed by the Council dealt with heretics and heresy. And let me say that this is a separate matter from the Spanish Inquisition, which was 250 years later, right? Here the Council of Toulouse ruled, in part, Canon 1. We appoint, therefore, that the archbishops and bishops shall swear in one priest and two or three laymen of good report, or more, if they think, in every parish, both in and out of cities, who shall diligently, faithfully, and frequently Seek out heretics in those parishes by searching all the houses and subterranean chambers which lie under suspicion, and looking out for buildings or appendages or outbuildings in the roofs themselves or any other kind of hiding places, all which we direct to be destroyed. Canon 6. Directs that the house in which any heretic shall be found shall be destroyed. Canon 14. We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old Testament or New Testament, unless anyone from motive of devotion should wish to have the Psalter or the Breviary for Divine Offices or the Hours of the Blessed Virgin. But we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. So you can only have the Psalms in Latin as the basic run down there, and they forbid translations or the possession of the Gospels or the Old Testament. That's the Catholic Church. They had a drastic change in between the 9th century and, and, or the 8th century AD in the time of Bede, and, and then the 12th century and 13th century, and the time of Innocent Three and the Council of Toulouse, where they were banning possession of the Scripture. That last quote from the Council of Toulouse came from Heresy and Authority in Medieval Europe. Scholar Press, London Copyright, 1980. These edicts of the 12th and 13th centuries were among the first responses of a tyrannical church against people who read the scripture and disagreed with Rome and the interpretation of its meaning. There were bishops who actively sought to destroy Bibles, and even demanded that people turn them in. It was also in the 12th century that the independent Kaldi Church of Ireland and Scotland, which was never related to the Roman Catholics, had been subjugated to Rome. While Rome sought, quote-unquote, one true church, to the contrary, Paul told the Corinthians this. Paul told the Corinthians that there must also be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident among you. We're supposed to have sex. That's a teaching of Paul's. It's at 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. I said sex, not sex. And from his work, we also learn of the people of Beroia that, quote, these were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica who accepted the word with all eagerness each day examining the writings, if things would hold thusly. So the many from among them believed, and of the noble Greek women and men, not a few. That's my translation of Acts 17, 11, and 12. The body of Christ is a collection of stones which builds itself into assemblies of Yahweh. The King James at 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9 says, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, quote, But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ from whom all the body is being joined together and is being reconciled through every stroke of assistance, according to the operation of each single part and proportion. The growth of the body creates itself into a building in love. That building is the true church, the individual members of, of Christian Israel who have accepted the covenants. Christians were expected to study the scriptures for themselves, as we see in Acts chapter 17. And act a- They were to study the scripture for themselves and arrive at their own conclusions and act according to those conclusions. In that manner, we understand that God is in control and not man. That's an important distinction. The Romish Catholic Church clearly did not like that idea since it was little but a professional pagan priesthood which feared losing control of the people. Therefore, the angel with the small book which was open, which descends out of heaven, symbolizes the word of God in the hands of the people and in the form of the Bible, which the people at least had in some degree, as is evident indeed, and which the Romish church tried to take away. The invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg circa 1440 upon which one of the first mass-produced books was a copy of the Latin Vulgate Bible, and which a short time later launched a revolution in the distribution of printed matter, especially the works of Christian writers such as Luther and Erasmus, assured that the Bible would forever remain a fixture in Christian homes. Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 10. And the messenger whom I saw standing upon the sea and upon the earth, raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by he who lives for the eternal ages, who created the heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be no longer delay, that there shall no longer be delay, I'm sorry, but in the days of the sound of the seventh messenger, when he is about to sound the trumpet, then the mystery of Yahweh is completed, and He, as he had announced by his servants, the prophets. The King James Version reads at the end of verse 6 that there should be time no longer. Yet the Greek word is often used to signify delay, and that is how I have read it here. Bertrand Camperi asserted that this verse should be read, there shall be one more time and made a ridiculous argument in spite of all the translations that he himself cited to the contrary. In truth, there is no way that Hodi Kronos Ugeti Estahi could ever mean there shall be one more time. A rendering which adds the idea of the number one to the text and ignores the negative "uk" in Ugeti and so Comparé was simply wrong. Kronos literally time is also delay and just as properly here. The Greeks had a couple of verbs derived from chronos, which meant to delay or to waste time, chronizo and and chronotribio, and at chronos, Liddell and Scott have in part four, delay or loss of time in their definition. Since in context, time makes no sense here, Delay would be a proper translation, and Rotherham, Smith, and Goodspeed, and Moffat, and their versions of the New Testament, all translated it in that manner. Compare cited them all, and they have all done well. So the end of verse 6 should not say there would be no more time. It should say that there shall be no, no longer be delay in chapter 10 of Revelation. The interpretation vindicates the translation. The seventh messenger does not sound until the end of chapter 11 uh, in verse 15 yet this is a complex issue. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 21 we see that after the beast empires lose their dominion the kingdom is handed over to the saints of the most high Daniel 7:22. I will speak of this at great length when we discuss Revelation chapter 13, in the weeks to come, Yahweh willing. It was the Reformation which began this process. The Reformation freed the main body of the people of God, the Saxon people, from the power of the second beast of Revelation 13, which is also the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which is the Romish church papacy the office of the Pope, ruling over the people of Europe. Once this happened, the Saxon peoples of Northern Europe did indeed gain world hegemony, and they are still the greatest cultural influence in the world today, even though they are not more than a 20th of the world's population, probably a lot less than that. However, today there are other prophecies which are unfolding and which are affecting us, and those will also be discussed in the later chapters of the Revelation, especially at chapter 17. The mystery of Yahweh, which we read about here in this passage of Revelation, is the concealment and the later revelation of his people. The mystery of Yahweh is that he put Israel away and that he would find them. The concealment of the people of Yahweh happened after the Assyrian deportations of Israel, and the revelation would happen in the gospel. Therefore, Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, read thusly, where Simeon explains, in part, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and the honor of your people Israel. As a second witness, here is the Christogonian New Testament translation of Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 7. For this cause I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ on behalf of you of the nations... If indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit, those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. It is fully evident that by the prophecies of the Old Testament, the children of Israel would be revealed in their fulfillment of the word, of Yahweh upon receiving the gospel, and that is what was elucidated in the Reformation. The mystery of Yahweh, which was revealed in these passages. Even if the children of Yahweh themselves did not realize that revelation, and you could bet that they did not. The people that we see building the kingdom of God after the eclipse of the papacy, these are the people of God. Evident In Daniel chapters 2, and Daniel chapter 7, and here in Revelation chapter 10. The Germanic tribes that destroyed Rome, the old Rome, they were the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. That mountain is the mountain of the people of Yahweh, the Germanic people. The mystery of God is fulfilled when those Germanic people break free of the church in order to obey the gospel of Christ. Revelation 10, verse 8. And the voice which I heard from out of heaven speaks with me again and says... Go take the book which is opened in the hand of the messenger who is standing upon the sea and upon the land. And I went to the messenger, saying to him, Give to me the small book. And he says to me, Take it and eat. Your belly shall be bitter, but in your mouth it shall be as sweet as honey. And I took the small book from the hand of the messenger, and I devoured it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And when I ate it, my belly had become bitter. Then they say to me, it is necessary for you to prophesy again concerning many people and nations and tongues and kings. Men love to read and to speak the word of Yahweh. But as the Apostle Peter warned us at 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, Blessed is Yahweh even the father of our Prince Joshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above, into a living hope through the resurrection of Joshua Christ from among the dead, for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh through faith, for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time, in which you must rejoice. Here's the point. If for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, in order that the test of your faith much more valuable than gold, which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Joshua Christ. Whom not having seen you love, and whom not now seeing but believing, you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls." Likewise, James said, blessed is a man who endures trial, because being approved, he shall receive the crown of life, which he promised to those who love him. We do not realize these trials when we embrace the things of the world and join ourselves to the world, as long as we have the things of the world. But when we pursue the things of God, then we realize them, and we pray that he keeps us from them. Covering ourselves with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the word of God is sweet in our mouths, but bitter in our bellies. If we have joined ourselves to the things of the world, it pains us to hear it. But if we enjoy hearing it, it pains us to live by it, because of the strife which we get from the world. Ezekiel put it this way, at Ezekiel 2, verse 2. 8 through Ezekiel 3, verse 3. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent to me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And it was written therein, lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey for sweetness. The desire of the Germanic peoples to read... And their will to follow the word of God once they were able to read their Bibles caused them to revolt from the tyrannical Romish church, which in turn caused the great wars throughout Europe, notably the Thirty Years' War in Germany, the destruction of the Huguenots under Catherine de' Medici in France, and all the bloodletting of the English Reformation and its temporary reversals in the 16th century. There are estimated to be as many, 12, as, many as 12 million deaths In the Thirty Years' War alone, all because the popes thought that they had a right to rule over men. None of this is Christian. The powers of evil, which wanted to oppress the people, combined with the Nicolaitans, the people conquerors, among our own people, who forever seek to rule over us, these would have stamped out the word of God, totally removing it from our lives and replacing it with church law and papal decrees. Chapter 11, verse 1, and he had given to me a reed like a staff, saying, Arise and measure the temple of Yahweh and the altar and those worshiping at it. And the court outside the temple, leave out that you should not measure it, because it has been given to the heathens, and the holy city they shall trample for forty and two months. God does not dwell in a house built with hands, but he dwells within us, and therefore the temple of Yahweh here is an allegory for his people in the world. The 42 months is the same as the 1260 days, which shall, which follows in verse 3 below. 42 times 30 days equals 1260 days, and we shall see the same measurements of time again, though not necessarily of the same time periods. In Revelation chapter 13, where Daniel 7 shall also be discussed. The word heathens does not necessarily mean to describe aliens. It is basically nations or people. However, I have translated it as heathens whenever I have felt that the word was used to describe a people or nation in opposition to the will of God or apart from those people seeking to follow the will of God. So uh, very often heathen or heathens in context is appropriate. Here we see a vision of the core of his people Israel, who are the temple of God where Yahweh dwells, who would be separated from the beast church while outside, those outside would continue to be trampled by it. This does not mean that there are no Israelites in those nations which remained Catholic after the Reformation. But rather, it is only an allegorical picture so that we can look back at history and, and the history of our race and understand what it is that has happened to us. So the temple of God here is the main body of the children of Israel who broke off from the Catholic Church. Verse 3, And I shall give my two witnesses that they shall prophesy 1,260 days Cloaked in cloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which are standing before the sovereign of the earth. The two witnesses are the two olive trees, and the two witnesses are also the two lampstands. These are Israel and Judah. At Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12, Yahweh says, Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh. And my Servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. We are told in Zechariah chapter 4 that these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Since Yahshua Christ is the Lord of the whole earth, then the Saxon peoples have proven themselves to be the children of Israel by becoming the primary vessels of Christendom. Isaiah sixty-two-one says of Zion that the salvation thereof would be as a lamp that burneth. Christ said at Luke 8 Chapter chapter 8, verse 16. Now no one lighting a lamp conceals it in a vessel or sets it under a couch, but sets it upon a lampstand, that those entering in would see the light. For there is nothing secret which shall not become evident, nor hidden which shall not be known and brought to light. Yahshua said again at Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, You are the light of the society. A city sitting upon a mountain is not able to be hidden, neither do they ignite a lamp and set it under a basket, but upon a lampstand, and it gives light for all those in the house. Thusly, you must give your light before men, that they may see your good works, and they may honor your Father who is in the heavens. The Saxon peoples are that shining city on the hill, They are the lamp which could not be hid, and they are the light of the world. For only they, out of all the world's people, have tried to civilize the entire globe and bring it under the rule of law, for better or for worse. This all began after the Reformation took place, when the children of God laid aside the paganism of the Romish church and embraced the word of God. Although blind to their actual identity, Israel and Judah had been accepting and then in turn spreading the gospel for 1260 years, or in some cases a little longer, which represents the time from the passion of Christ and the spread of the gospel into Europe to the time when his people began to demand that they live by the word of God and not by the word of tyrants. Yet, As the spread of the gospel into Europe was a process which took several centuries, so was the Reformation and the break from the Romish Catholic Church, a process which also took several centuries. Revelation chapter 11, verse 5. And if one wishes to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if one should wish to harm them thusly, it is necessary for him to die. They have the authority to shut heaven in order that water would not rain in the days of their prophecy, and they have the authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every calamity as often as they should desire. The fire is the word of God to those who resist it, and these two witnesses would prevail over all those who oppose them in bringing it to light. The rain is the word of God to those who accept it, and there would be no fruit on the earth lest it come from Israel and Judah. The little book would be open, and no one could stop it. Thus we see that in spite of the enemies of God, the Reformation would succeed in getting the word into the hands of the people and keeping it there. Verse 7. And when their testimony should be completed, the beast which ascends from out of the bottomless pit shall make war with them, and shall conquer them, and shall slay them. And their bodies upon the streets of the great city, which is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where also their prince had been crucified. And those from among the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations shall see their bodies for three and a half days. And they do not allow their bodies to be buried in the tomb. And those dwelling upon the earth rejoice over them, And they delight, and they shall send gifts to one another, because these two prophets had tormented those dwelling upon the earth. The forces behind Popery, who seek to oppress the nations, are the same forces which were behind the crucifixion of Christ. The testimony of the people of God was completed upon the manifestation that they would seek to live by the word of God, and not by the oppressive will of the unchristian popes. Whether they knew it or not, and they certainly did not, this alone proves that the Saxon peoples are indeed the people of God, the actual children of Israel, because it fulfills prophecy, the prophecy of God concerning Israel, that they would return to him through his Christ. This is evident in part in Hosea 2.7, where it says of Israel, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. Looks like we have a Jew in the chat room. The beast which ascends out of the bottomless pit will be fully elucidated in Revelation chapter 20. This represents the Antichrist Jews and the Jewish money powers, which were sought to oppress the people of Europe. I'm sorry, which were the Jewish money powers, which were isolated from Christian society and which have now surreptitiously infiltrated the papacy and sought to oppress the people of Europe. When all of these aspects of the Revelation are understood in harmony, after chapters 12, 13, and 20 are fully elucidated, they shall all be much clearer as a whole and as a cohesive body of prophecy. For the Jews in their power to corrupt through usury, excoriated from Christian society with laws governing their unchristian practices from the time of the Council of Nikahia through the time of Theodosius II, and they began to break these bindings with the de Medici popes, who themselves came from a Jewish banking family, and had their very name from the practice of sorcery. It was these de Medici popes who almost put a stop to the Reformation, which we shall see. Chapter 11, verse 11. And after the three and a half days, a spirit of life from Yahweh entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear had fallen upon those watching them. And I heard a great voice from out of heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and there had died in the earthquake seven thousand names of men, and those who remained became terrified and gave honor to the God of heaven. The second woe is departed. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. It must be mentioned that prior to the beginning of the 16th century, there were already great oppressions of those in Europe who disagreed with Rome on theological grounds. There were the persecutions of the sects of the Albigenses and the Waldenses, for instance. And there were also the Hussite wars against the followers of Jan Hus in Bohemia. I should say Jan Hus. Bertrand Camperet related, related this three and a half days in which the two witnesses lay dead to the space of time between the convention of the Fifth Lateran Council and Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 pieces to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I would agree with Camperet's identification, but only in part. Before the Fifth Lateran Council, originally convened by Pope Julius II, there was a strong move for reform centered in France, where King Louis XII had earned the name Father of the People, that alone enough to, be, to make the Pope jealous, and he stood opposed to the rule of the Pope. He also supported several cardinals who sought reforms and, and broke from the Pope. The Venetians were his allies. The bishops of France sided with him. Threatening to march on Rome, he had taken Milan and Ravenna. An ecclesiastical council hostile to the Pope was called at Pisa in Italy, but being threatened with violence by the local populace, probably at the behest of the Jews, it was moved several times. Eventually it failed, and it was dissolved without accomplishment. King Louis XII then suffered a damaging military defeat at the hands of the Swiss, who were on the side of the Pope, which put an end to his ambitions. The 5th Lateran Council was then called by Julius with an aim to further solidify the power of the papacy and to answer the calls to reforms. Julius convened the council, but died almost as soon as it began, on February 21st, 1513. The 5th Lateran Council did indeed go on to change the face of Roman Catholicism, but probably not as even Julius intended. The new pope was Leo X, whose real name was actually Giovanni de Medici. He was only 37 years old when he was elected and not even ordained as a priest. He was a Jewish politician, basically. He was elected March 11, 1513 and presided at the Fifth Lateran Council in its seventh session on April 27, 1513. Among the decrees made at the council were the following. A bull published by Leo X by the de' Medici, on May 4th, 1515, which sanctioned the Monte di Pieta, which were financial institutions under church supervision, which were to provide loans to the people in the manner of pawn shops, pawn shops operated by the church. And which had attracted both support and opposition from the church, from within the church, since their establishment in Italy 50 years earlier. This allowed the Romish church to enter down the slippery slope of the approval of usury. The bull gives the decision that this practice is perfectly lawful and that such loans are not in any way to be considered an act of usury. All who, after this decree was issued, continue to stigmatize such loans, whether layman, priest, or religious, incurred the penalty of excommunication. A bull concerning the freedom of the church and the dignity of bishops, a bull requiring that before a book could be printed, the local bishop had to give permission. That's very important to understand that the Catholics had done that at this time because the Bible was already banned. So before any Bible could be printed in lands ruled over by the popes, by the Catholics, the bishop had to give permission, and there was no bishop in Christianity who would give anybody permission to print the Bible if the Bible had already been banned by the Catholic Church a bull condemning the French pragmatic sanction which sought to prevent the papacy from extending its power, a bull promulgating a decree advocating war against the Turks in order to reclaim the Holy Land to be funded by the levying of taxes for three years. Another bull concerned preaching, which while sounding good on its face, left the church and the papacy free from any possibility of future criticism. Quote, That preaching, at this time, had fallen on evil days, we should know, even though the council did not explicitly say so. This is the Catholic perspective. It is a commonplace of all the contemporary literature. While too many priests are too ignorant to preach, says the council, very many others do no more than divert themselves learnedly or foolishly, whether they find themselves in the pulpit, whenever they find themselves in the pulpit. So the council recalls the simple idea, and passing to abuses, they call for correction. It sharply forbids the common practice of preachers prophesying that, the, e.g., that the last, for example, that the last day is at hand, that the antichrist is around, abroad, that the divine wrath is about to consume us, etc. Those who have made such predictions are liars, quote unquote. The preacher is forbidden to draw from Holy Scripture conclusions as to any future happenings or to say that he has been sent by God to say this or that he knows it by a revelation. This behavior is outlawed by the Catholic Church. A second chronic source of mischief in the Middle Ages is also rebuked. Preachers are strictly forbidden to preach about the sins of other clergy publicly defaming the character of bishops, prelates, and officers, and others in authority. By the preacher, is it is meant, given the age, a friar of one of the four mendicant orders, for almost the whole of what preaching was done was their work. Their superiors are now warned to see that they are fit and competent for the office, and the preachers are bidden to show the local bishop these testimonies to their piety and fitness. Piety to the church, obviously. Preachers who offend against the decree are, of course, to be stringently punished. That paragraph, roughly written, comes from The Church in Crisis, A History of the Gener- General Councils by Philip Hughes. Usury, the, the bottom line, the fifth Lateran council, usury abhorred by Yahweh became legitimate. Preaching and Bible publishing were restricted or, in reality, Outlawed. Of the other decrees made by this council, christusrex.org quoting that same book by Philip Hughes says the following: "Quote, little wonder that as the historians have read the decrees, they discount as platitud,e the conventional expressions of horror at abuses, and sneer at sternly worded reform laws which are peppered with exceptions." and legal loopholes to make disobedience lawful. The magnificent gesture only too often peters out in the feeble conclusion. We, therefore, repeating all our predecessors have said, renew all they have decreed. Certainly, to read the opening passage of the decree, that is to provide better bishops to the future, and better abbots is an experience to try one's patience or to read the reforms imposed on the cardinals of the Roman Curia, solemnly saying their servants must not wear long hair or grow beards and the like, while at every step in the gravest matters, the most extraordinary exceptions are legalized. All the main topics that had caused reformers and saints to groan for 200 years and more are mentioned. Benefices, fees among them, of course, given to bad men or to good men, otherwise altogether unsuited, plurality of benefices, whose duties are incompatible, given to the favored minority, abbeys given in commendum, that is to say, to clerics who are not monks at all, whose sole purpose is to take from the monks their revenue for the profit of the absentee secular priest or bishop. All these wonders by means of papal dispensations. So no more abbeys are to be dealt with in this way unless, almost the key word in this unhappy legislation, in consideration of the present state of things, it should be considered expedient to do otherwise. In other words, the reforms had a lot of loopholes. Pluralities of incompatible offices, to be a bishop in Spain and at the same time an archbishop in France and an abbot in Italy, to hold canonries in a half-dozen cathedrals at once, dispensations for these are to be limited, and so those who hold more than four such offices are to resign all but four within a given space of time, two years. Monasteries given in commandment for the future are to go only to cardinals and well-deserving persons, and the commendatory's financial hold on the Abbey is somewhat restricted. In other words, what the church was doing is they were taking their political cronies, their buddies, the, the, um, the, the, the good old boys club of Italy, I guess, and, and they were all holding three, four, five, six offices at the same time, collecting all those salaries, and they were absentee clerics. With all these loopholes built into these, the, these reforms at the Fifth Lateran Council with the banishment of preaching, of free and independent preaching, and with the practical forbiddance of Bible printing, where the word, the word of God was totally removed from the people, it is evident that unrestrained Phariseeism, Came fully into Catholicism with the Fifth Lateran Council and the Jewish de Medici Pope in charge. Imagine that. But quite importantly, also at the council, Leo, Giovanni de Medici, accepted the submission of two of the surviving rebel cardinals and received them as priests as they read a prepared statement of contrition and repudiation of their acts against the papacy. It is reported that thousands of people flocked to the Vatican to witness this event and to gloat over the spectacle of humiliation. So we see, as the scripture says, of the two witnesses who were dead in the street, those dwelling upon the earth, rejoiced over the death of the rebellion of any chance at reforms and the rebellion against unbridled papal power. The idea of constructive reforms was indeed dead, and now the power of the pope was greater than at the start. Also, since bishops would have to approve the printing of books, the people may never see another Bible, since Bibles were already virtually banned from the people by prior papal decrees. Several months after the closing of the Fifth Lateran Council, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Luther's theses were publicized in response to the church's failure to enact any real reform. They were nailed to the door on All Saints Day, 1517, a day when pilgrims were going to Wittenberg for indulgences. An example of the importance that the church placed on the collection of indulgences is found in the preaching of men, such as Johann Tetzel, who was more pompous than a a modern-day televangelist in asking for money. He made claims such as that indulgences made the sinner cleaner than when coming out of baptism, and that the cross of the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ. This was a Catholic preacher raising money for the church. And that indulgences, he said, make the sinner cleaner than Adam before the fall. Absolute blasphemy. He is quoted as having said, listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us, we are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. The church was teaching that if you gave them money, they could get your friends and relatives out of purgatory. Tetzel became so unpopular with the people that he had to hide in the Dominican convent in Leipzig for fear of a popular violence. It was in this convent during Luther's debate in the city with Jonathan, Johann Eck I'm sorry, on the subject of indulgences that Tetzel died. Indulgences in the last century of the Middle Ages were given for all sorts of benevolent purposes – crusades against the Turks, the building of churches and hospitals, in connection with relics for the rebuilding of a town desolated by fire, such as Brew, for bridges and for the repair of dikes, such an indulgence being asked by Charles V. The benefits were received by the payment of money, and a portion of the receipts, from one-third to one-half, was expected to go to Rome, the territory that was their rake-off, The territory chiefly, we may say, almost exclusively worked for such enterprises as the collection of indulgences, was confined to the Germanic peoples of the continent from Switzerland and Austria to Norway and England, and Sweden, I'm sorry. England, France, and Spain were hardly touched by the traffic of indulgences. That comes from Schaff, Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church. The Romish Catholic Church was using indulgences to loot and to pillage the Christians of the Germanic nations. For Rome, Luther's theses were an economic argument. For Luther, they were theological. Rome was taking payments when Jesus Christ had already made the payment. Rome was charging for God's free gift. Rome was making people feel guilty for not doing enough when Jesus had already done all for those who trust in him. There is no reason to believe that Leo X ever fully appreciated the moral dimensions of the crisis that exploded during his pontificate. He appears to have regarded it instead as a temporary interruption of his fundraising strategy. That last quote comes from Idiot's Guide's. The Popes and the Papacy, page 156. Leo X, the de' Medici Pope, presided over the Fifth Lateran Council for nearly four years. And during that time, Italy and all of the supporters of the Papacy rejoiced because any chance at reform was put down. If it were not for Martin Luther, all opposition to the Papacy was stifled at this time. The children of Israel would not have had the word of God, but would have rather remain oppressed by the tyranny of the Roman church and the Jewish money power. Here, Israel and Judah appeared to lay dead in the streets for three and a half years while the powers of the adversary, while the powers of Satan prevailed. Now, while we can agree with Combray that this period of the fifth ladder in council was a period where the two witnesses, Israel and Judah, lay prostrate before the beast, perhaps this is only one of the two witnesses, and Israel, Judah, I'm sorry, and, and perhaps the other one for Ephraim as representing Israel, happens just 40 years later. For so there is another period a little later in England where it also looked as though the Romish Catholic Church might prevail over the true saints of God, and it certainly warrants mention here. It was the wantonness of Henry VIII which brought England to break away from the popes of Rome. Yet, under Henry's successor, Edward VI, a very young ruler who died after an illness at 15 years of age, who, when he first fell ill with his regency council, which was mostly Protestant, drew up a plan for succession, which was an attempt to prevent his half sister Mary from gaining the throne and returning the country to Roman Catholicism. The plan named his cousin Jane Grey as his heir. However, the plan failed, and after Edward's death, Mary succeeded to the throne anyway. Jane Grey had ruled England for a mere nine days before she was thrown out. Mary began her short and tumultuous reign at 37 years of age, arriving in London amid a scene of great rejoicing. Again, with the victory of Catholicism over the Reformation, Those dwelling upon the earth rejoiced over the subjection of the children of Israel to the earthly power of the Pope. Following the disarray created by Edward VI's passing of the succession to Jane Grey, Mary's first act was to repeal the Protestant legislation of her brother, Edward VI, hurling England into a phase of severe religious persecution. Mary issued a proclamation that she would not compel any of her subjects to follow her religion, but by the end of September, leading reforming churchmen, such as John Bradford, John Rogers, John Hooper, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Kramer, were all imprisoned. This was done in her first parliament in October of 1553. Another of Mary's first actions as queen was to order the release of the Roman Catholic Duke of Norfolk and Stephen Gardner from imprisonment in the Tower of London, as well as her kinsman, Edward Courtenay. Her primary goal was the reestablishment of Catholicism in England, something to which she was totally committed. While Edward was king, he repeatedly harassed Mary to give up Catholicism, and she steadfastly refused. Her persecutions came more from a desire for what she considered to be purity and faith than from vengeance. Yet nearly 300 people, including former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramer, and many of the most prominent members of the society, were burned at the stake for heresy, earning Mary the nickname Bloody Mary. And Catholic, and, and church doctrine was restored to the Catholic form it had been in in 1539. The English Church was officially returned to Rome in 1554 under an agreement with Pope Julius III, the III. Under the Heresy Acts, numerous Protestants were executed in the Marian persecutions. Many rich Protestants, including John Fox, chose exile, and around 800 of them left the country. The first executions occurred over a period of five days in early February 1555. John Rogers on February 4th, Lawrence Sanders on February 8th, and Roland Taylor and John Hoover on February 9th. The imprisoned Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Kramer, was forced to watch Bishops Ridley and Latimer being burned at the stake. Kramer recanted, repudiated Protestant theology, and rejoined the Catholic faith. Under the normal process of law, he should have been absolved as a repentant. Mary, however, refused to reprieve him. On the day of his burning, he dramatically withdrew his recantation. All told, 283 persons were executed, most by burning. The burnings proved so unpopular that even one of her husband's own ecclesiastical staff had condemned them. She was married to Philip, Prince of Spain. Philip's advisor, Simon Renard, warned him that such cruel enforcement could cause a revolt. Mary persevered with the policy and continued until her death. Her policy exacerbated anti-Catholic and anti-Spanish feeling among the English people. Queen Mary died at the age of 42 from an influenza epidemic on November 17, 1558. This ended three and a half years of persecutions and executions of Protestants. The victims of the persecutions were honored as martyrs. During this period, it looked as if England may remain Catholic and therefore under the rule of the Pope. Mary's husband, Philip, had attempted to to concoct a plan which would prevent Edward VI and Mary's other half-sister from succeeding, but he failed. Elizabeth I ascended to the throne and England returned to Protestantism. This time, permanently There were the two witnesses: three and a half years where the German Reformation looked dead, or the Reformation on a continent looked dead, and three and a half years where the Reformation in England looked dead. Verse 15: And the seventh messenger sounded the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the society of our prince and of his anointed has come and he shall rule for the eternal ages and the 24 elders who were sitting on their thrones before yahweh fell upon their faces and worshiped yahweh saying we thank you prince yahweh almighty who he who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have reigned and the heathen's had been angry, yet your anger has come, and the time to judge of the dead, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, to the small ones, and to the great ones, and to destroy those destroying the earth. While it was far from over, the success of the Protestants over the Romish church Ensured the world rise, the rise to world hegemony of the Christian Saxon peoples who constitute the true kingdom of God. Now we possess the kingdom of God on earth permanently. However, we are also under many other prophecies which are still being fulfilled, and our final restoration does not come until Babylon finally falls. That will be discussed, Yahweh willing in the later chapters of the Revelation. Verse 19. And the temple of Yahweh who is in heaven, and the ark of his covenant is seen in his temple, and there were lightnings and noises and thunders and an earthquake and a hailstorm. The symbolism of the ark of the covenant is an assurance that these people who are Christians and bear the witness of the gospel are those same people who were in the exodus with Moses and wandered in the desert 40 years. The perfect harmony of these scriptures with history should dispel all the notions of the futurists, and this, I pray, shall be made even clearer upon the discussion of the next two chapters of the Revelation. The children of Israel, as soon as they departed from the Catholic Church and sought the will of God, in a few hundred years built the greatest nations that the world had ever known. However, once Satan was let out of the pit, the great civilization of Protestant Christendom began to decay. The only hope that we have for salvation in this world is to reject the things of this world and to return to Yahweh, our God. Thank you. I will be here next week with Revelation chapters 12 and 13. Tonight's notes, my, my commentary notes are already posted on the site at org and this program will appear shortly on org with the, this full set of notes and, and the, um, the introductory material that I read. Thank you and good night.